Um, I, I thought about, you know, doing a, uh, Etta even asked me, you're not doing a, a farewell sermon? Well, you know, I'm not super emotional anyway. Some of you all might, might know that uh, about me. So uh, it, it wouldn't, I don't think it would have rung true if I had tried that. But honestly, um, I would rather leave y'all with a message of the importance, the, the priority of the foundation of Scripture in the life of a Christian and a church rather than leave you with something emotional about, you know, me being, uh, me leaving or something like that. The, the emotional part is in the bulletin. Um, I, I do, you know, th this is the end of an era, whether it's uh, uh, a good era or a bad era is left for the future to decide and those who come later and some who have already made the decision uh, about whether it was or not. So this morning, I, it, there, there's no way I, don't, I feel I could cap the nearly five years I've been here except to preach what I would have preached if, if I wasn't leaving today. And that is the necessity of Scripture, the priority of Scripture, and preach the message I would have preached from the first Sunday to the last Sunday. And, and that's what we're doing. And I think it's a great bookend to have started in Acts chapter 1, um, the beginning of the church. That was my first sermon. Uh, I preached a series on uh, a church changing the world uh, when I first came. And uh, as a matter of fact, my call sermon was the first chapter of Acts. And then I picked that up when I came uh, a couple of Sundays later to start. The beginning of the, the New Testament church, well, this morning we're in 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter. Not the last thing written in the New Testament. That would be Revelation written uh, around 90 AD. But as far as the, the founding of the church goes, the work of the church, this is the last letter Paul would, uh, would write. And, and it has that, that feel of, this is it, y'all. Uh, particularly Timothy, who was a pastor in Ephesus. This is it. This is the last opportunity I have to speak directly to you. Let me get those things out that are most important to my ministry, uh, to your ministry. Uh, to, to Timothy's ministry, to the ministry of the church in Ephesus. And uh, I think it's a, it's a great way for us to move on to the next ministries that, that we have as a family and, and Nixon has as a church. So turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, it would be verses 15 through 17 with really most of our emphasis on verse 16. But to warm us up to it, this is the third and last message of a series, What Churches Don't Need. We talked about a weak gospel. Churches don't need a weak gospel uh, three weeks ago. Two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that churches don't need an inward focus. Our focus has to be on the lost outside of these four walls. And this week, what we don't need is a therapeutic moralism. I'll define that for you in a few minutes, but I can give you images, not literal images, because some of these would be kind of rough if I put them on the screen, uh, of what therapeutic moralism is. Uh, for example, a Band-Aid, uh, Sharon, um, is, is, am I selected correctly up there? Okay. There we go. Uh, a Band-Aid is no help for a bullet wound to the chest, right? Not going not gonna to work. Keith's not here to, for me to pick on and say that, you know, but uh, I would if he were here, 
paramedic shows up, bullet wounds, they're not going to pull out the, oh, well, yep, I got this. Pastor who preached here last summer, uh, David Leno, I guess it was last summer, from South Africa, they call them plasters, except, of course, it's plasta. Plasta, that, that's what they call band-aids. So a, a plasta put on your bullet wound isn't going to help you much. Uh, if you're... Your, your engine is locked up because you haven't put oil in it in three years. Well, changing the oil is not going to unlock those pistons. You're done. The engine's done. Similarly, therapeutic moralism does not change hearts. Therapeutic moralism preached or taught does not change hearts. And, and I'm specifically focusing on preaching today, the, the biblical preaching, but this goes for our Sunday school classes. This goes from what we, uh, goes toward what we expect from Scripture as we read it on our own. I know Edda's been leading the ladies' Bible study uh, about spending time abiding in Scripture, and if we approach it with the idea that it's going to be therapeutic moralism in our lives, then we're going to mess up. We need to approach it differently. So what is therapeutic moralism? Well, it's also, if you go home and Google it, and if you want to, and you, there it talks about it in various places, you're also going to find it called moralistic therapeutic deism. Well, I left out the deism, uh, but I'll explain that to you. Deism is the idea that God created everything and then stepped back, wound it up, stepped back, and let it go. And he doesn't involve himself in it anymore. Uh, most of the founding fathers of our country were deists to some extent. They believed in the Creator. Uh, they, they believed that he started it all, but then stepped back, and we're left to our own devices. Um, that's what we kind of act like sometimes as Christians. I'm going to focus today on the therapeutic and moralistic part of it. Therapeutic says that God, in this case, God wants us to be happy and well-adjusted. Uh, you, you would not believe the number of times I've heard, and I heard this in a Sunday school class one day, someone say, I got a divorce, but it was okay because God wants me to be happy. And you've heard me say from this pulpit numerous times, God does not want us to be happy. He wants us to be holy. And our happiness may be a part of our holiness. It may be a result of our holiness, but that's not God's will for us. Holiness is. So therapeutic part of therapeutic moralism is that God wants people to be happy and well-adjusted. The moralism part is that God wants us to behave. Now, we, we, we take those two things apart and we say, well, surely God wants us to behave. Well, absolutely. I mean, there are standards that are set. But preaching is not the idea that I stand up here. Biblical Bible study is not the idea that your teacher sits there and says, now, God wants you to feel good, so do good. And if you do good, you'll feel good. And there's far too much of that in our pulpits across the country today. I won't call any names, but it's, it's out there and it's prominent. And our passage is 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. And I think this tells us clearly what biblical preaching and teaching should be because it tells us what Scripture is. So if you haven't turned there yet, go ahead and get there. It says, picking up a thought from verse 14 about uh, how Timothy grew up, and you know that from childhood you have known the sacred Scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
It's hard to find therapeutic moralism in that passage. And we're going to break it down and see exactly what it is. And, and just like the other two sermons I've preached, therapeutic moralism is what we don't need. What we need is biblical preaching and teaching and response to Scripture in our personal reading. But the phrase I'm going to use over and over this morning is biblical preaching. That, so that's the broad view, but you keep in mind that it also has some narrower views. Biblical preaching sees Scripture as sacred. Paul tells Timothy, you've been brought up this way. You know from your childhood the sacred Scriptures. It's not even a question for Paul. It's not even uh, a discussion. Uh, are we, we going to talk about this? He said, Timothy, you know you've been brought up. And you know that you've been brought up under what is sacred scripture. Sacred means holy or set apart. It is different. The Bible is different from any other book. This is not different from any other book. This is some kind of leather. I think I got genuine leather when I bought this. I, I guess it's cow. Um, paper made from trees. Uh, ink that's probably not toxic. Uh, it's, it's just a book. This is just pages. So if, if this gets old and torn up, I throw it in the trash, it's okay. We don't have a ceremony to get rid of our Bibles because it's just paper. It is the words that are sacred and holy and set apart and different. And it's not because it's a little more expensive or a nicer book or something like that that it's sacred and holy and set apart. It is sacred, holy, set apart, and different because of its author. And not authors, but its author. It, a lot of people wrote down what God said. And we're going to talk about inspiration. Uh, God breathed here in a few minutes. A lot of people wrote it down, but it's not special because Paul wrote it. It's not special because John wrote it. It's not special because James wrote it or Moses wrote it or David wrote it. It's not special because of those people. It's not a sacred or holy or set apart. It's because it is sacred, holy, and set apart because God wrote it. It is God's Word. That's why we don't say the Bible contains God's Word because then we can say, sure, it contains it, and it's right here, and it's right there, and a little further on there's God's Word, but everything else is kind of man. Word. No, we say that it is God's Word. The Bible has God as its author, and that's why it is sacred and holy and set apart different. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, Timothy, you've grown up this way. You were taught this way. You know from childhood the sacred scriptures. And what about those sacred scriptures? They are able to give you wisdom for salvation. Wisdom for salvation. See, biblical preaching shares salvation. I covered that a little bit three weeks ago, even a little bit two weeks ago. Every preacher should get to Jesus in their messages. Because Scripture doesn't save. I can stand up here and, and, and for months and months and months preach you from, to you from Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Acts and, and 1 John and 2 John, and we can go back to Romans, then we can hop back to some minor prophets, and I can tell you that Scripture and teach you that Scripture, but that Scripture does not save you. I can teach you John 3.16, and I can preach it. I can preach it every Sunday, but that Scripture does not save. Scripture doesn't save you. It's the only place we find the source of salvation. 
It's the only place where salvation is explained. It's the only place that we can go and say, okay, how can I be saved from my sin? Oh, it says it right here, I know. Any other source is, is, is inadequate. Any other place we go, any other, quote, holy, sacred book is inadequate for explaining salvation. Salvation is only found in Scripture, but Scripture doesn't save us. And we sometimes think it does. And we treat Scripture like uh, an incantation, an amulet that we wear. And so when we need to feel saved, we quote Scripture. Or when we need something to go well, we pray the, the prayer of Jabez or something like that. We, we use it as, as a force in itself. It is holy, it is sacred, it is set, set apart, but Scripture doesn't save us. Scripture explains to us the way of salvation. And that's what Jesus is, I mean, rather Paul is saying to Timothy. Those Scriptures are able to give you wisdom for salvation. He doesn't say those Scriptures are able to save you. We know that Scripture is able to give us wisdom for salvation because of who Scripture tells us about. Verse 15 goes on to say, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Not faith in Scripture. Not faith in what it says, but faith in a person. Faith in a real person. Biblical preaching points to Jesus. And this is my point about every message, every sermon should always get to the gospel. Every Sunday school class, every Bible study should always get to the gospel. Because the point of Scripture is Jesus. Remember, Paul here is talking about primarily the Old Testament. Now, it's very likely he had in mind gospel, uh, the, the gospel stories that they were, uh, by this time, very likely written down and beginning to circulate. We know that Peter, in uh, 2 Peter, actually references Paul's letters as Scripture. So when Peter was writing, Paul's letters were already circulating around the church, and Peter knew it and said, y'all, this is Scripture too. So we, we understand that if Paul specifically didn't have the New Testament in mind at the time, he would have agreed that those Scriptures set apart by God were holy and sacred. But he also would have known that the purpose of those Scriptures, the reason he wrote those letters, was not to explain deep theological uh, points to people, though he did that. He was explaining those theological points to get them to understand Jesus. Always to Jesus. Always getting them to Jesus. Timothy, you know the sacred scriptures of the Old Testament, that the whole part of that is wisdom for salvation found only in, through faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel is the most important message that's preached. No matter where we start, I've, to, I've quoted Spurgeon before. He said, I, I preach my verse, I, I, I get my verse, and I make a beeline to the cross. And, and he did. Let me tell you, and sometimes you're going, scratching your head, how did he get there? How did he get here from there? Uh, but uh, he's Charles Spurgeon. We don't argue with him too much because um, the man knew what he was doing. But still, that is the purpose of Scripture, to get to the cross. No matter the text, it must always come back to Jesus. Because if we're just preaching Scripture, we're, and, 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 and I had a have had a tendency to do that, especially when you get into the narrative of the Old Testament, those stories, that we find the moral of the story. And, and that's okay, because I think that's a lot of why those Old Testament narratives are there, is, you know, this is how you don't act, the book of Judges. 
This is how you don't follow God. There are places where we see how you do follow God. Abraham, Moses, we see good examples of that. And, and honestly, in any life in the Old Testament, we see the good and the bad. David, adulterer, murderer, but man after God's own heart. We, we see that there, but we, 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 we are, are tempted to stop with the morals. Don't do this, do that, and you'll have a happy, well-adjusted life. Therapeutic moralism. We cannot stop there because the Old Testament, the purpose of the stories was to point to the need for Christ. The purpose of the stories was to point to the coming Messiah, to explain this is the need and here's the answer. Here's the solution. Here is what's needed. So biblical preaching always points to Jesus because that's where salvation is found, through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul goes on to say that biblical preaching knows the author. I do not understand how you can preach the Bible authoritatively without preaching the authoritative author. I don't understand. If this is just man's words, then what I need to get up here and do is give a lecture explaining what this man said and that man said, and now telling you that on the test, you need to tell me what I told you, but you may have a different interpretation or feeling about it or whatever. And honestly, that's what many of our churches do today, especially in some of our mainline denominations. They lecture on Scripture, and then everybody goes home. And there was no cross. There was no... Uh, knowledge of an author outside of the humans who wrote it. Paul says in verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God. Now I love my Holman Christian Standard translation of the Bible. I, I think it's a great translation, but I think they should have left God breathed in on this one. Because the Greek word is God breathed right there. And inspired has come to mean so much different than what Paul intended it to mean. We say that artists are inspired. We say uh, Miss Gina, when she makes her skillet apple pie, is inspired. And she is. I mean, that is good stuff. But we, we have watered down that word to a great extent. God's preaching, biblical preaching that knows the author, knows that the Scripture is God-breathed. It is God's words. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, there are varying views. There are really three views of what this God-breathed Scripture means. One view is that it was uh, the, the, the authors were in some sort of trance, and they sat down at their typewriter, and they didn't know what they were doing. They just... Now came Scripture. And then they read it and like, well, that, that's good stuff. You know, they had no idea. They were completely controlled by God with no, no influence over what they wrote. The other extreme from that is that God kind of gave them good feelings. And then they wrote Scripture out and they said, wow, that's good. I'm going to write that down. That feels good. I like that. that. Oh, that's, yeah, that's nice. And then, you know, and, and it was God inspired it. And that's why that word inspired is kind of weak. Uh, the, in the, between those two is what we call verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal 
doesn't mean verbal as in we speak it. That's what verbal has come to mean today. Verbal means it's spoken, but that's not what it means academically. It means word for word, every word, verbal word, plenary across the board. So we say that every word of Scripture is God-breathed. But verbal plenary inspiration allows for, because we can clearly see the difference between the narrative of Judges and the poetry of Psalms. Verbal plenary inspiration allows for different genres of literature, allows for the, 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 the expressive nature of the authors to come through. Paul wrote differently from uh, Peter, who wrote differently from James, etc., etc. You get different Luke, the Gospels, read the four Gospels, clearly read, uh, written by four different people. And yet, verbal, verbal plenary inspiration says every word, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every word is God-breathed. But God used the personalities and the abilities of the various people uh, to, to create His Word. This gets us to the point where the uh, Scripture is both inerrant and infallible. A lot of people will say infallible when they won't say inerrant. I am an inerrantist. Scripture is inerrant. There are no errors in Scripture. What do we mean by that? Back in when Paul wrote it down in Greek, or actually a lot of times Paul had a secretary, an uh, uh, an amnuensis, I believe, is if I remember the word correctly, uh, a secretary that wrote it down when he dictated it to them. Uh, when they wrote it down in the subjects it covers, and this is why I'm a creationist, science, history, whatever, it is inerrant. There are no errors. Now, we find errors. Well, this one says 800, and this one says 1,000 men. Well, which is it? Well, okay, we all round up. We all, you know, the, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, one, two, three, we counted 854. How many do you have? 1,000. It's those kinds of things that people generally pull out as errors, and uh, we don't count those. So I believe it is inerrant. I don't believe that my English translation, regardless of which English translation you use, I don't believe that is inerrant because of translation issues and getting from Greek to English. We can see places where when they copied by hand, they repeated words or they repeated letters or they leave out a letter or leave out a word. Nothing that affects our theology at all, but just little places where you've done it too. Whether you type or handwrite, sometimes you come to an end of a line and you go back down and what? Okay, yeah. And you realize that you wrote a word there and you repeated that word here. That happens. Uh, we do it. We do it all the time. So it is inerrant, but it is also infallible. It, you find no fault in what it teaches. There's no. There's no discussion of does this address my issue. A lot of people will say infallible when they won't say inerrant. And biblical preaching knows the author, knows these God-breathed words because we understand that the author is what drives the message. If we say that it's just men or just people or whatever and they're fallible and the words are errant, then we have no theology to stand on. We have no doctrine to stand on. We have no sure foundation to stand on. Because why is it telling the truth about Jesus but not about Moses? Well, if it's not telling the truth about Moses, it immediately calls into question whether it's telling the truth about Jesus. If Paul is not Scripture, then how do we know Matthew is Scripture? 
See, those are the issues we face if we want to pull one part out as, as not God-breathed and another part is. So biblical preaching always knows the author and knows that it is preaching an inerrant, infallible, God-breathed text. Biblical preaching teaches, Paul says. You know that uh, all Scripture is inspired by God, and now he's telling us what it's profitable for. It is profitable for teaching. This is biblical understanding. There's a time, you know, I said earlier, you don't want to just preach Scripture just so people know Scripture. Well, you don't want to preach it just so that's the case, but you do want that to be the case. Scripture is profitable for teaching, for biblical understanding, for foundational knowledge, right? You, you remember when I started Matthew about a year ago, I, tell, I told you, as, or a year and a half ago, as we move through Matthew, there will be passages that are just foundational. And I showed you, I told you about the pianist, uh, the jazz pianist named Art Tatum and the, the Tree of Life in Disney World and how as beautiful as those things are, they both had a strong, firm foundation of basic concepts, the Bible's the same way. We teach those basic concepts, and then we add those things that allow us to apply those basic concepts, that foundational passage, to our lives in ways we might not have seen otherwise. It teaches specifics too, but in this case, I'm just wanting us to understand that there's a, 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 a foundational knowledge that, that the Scriptures teach us. And this allows us, I believe, especially uh, this sort of teaching and preaching, allows us situational scriptural recall. We get to a situation in life, and, and, and we're wondering, what do I do? And a Scripture comes to mind. Why? Is it something we've been memorizing? Eh, maybe. Maybe you did. Ha you have had a, uh, a, a discipline of memorizing Scripture. And that, script, that verse comes to mind. Maybe you don't remember it word for word. Maybe it's just, I remember a sermon on this one time. Where the preacher talked about when you're going through something kind of like what I'm going through. He used this verse and it said, basically, when you're faced with troubles... In all things, pray. You know, okay, oh, that's right, I remember now. I, that, I've got that foundation. That's what teaching does. Repetition over and over and over. That's why I say things over and over. I get y'all for 30 minutes a week for the most part. So that's why this Sunday I'll preach something, and next Sunday I'll preach something, and the next, and the next, and I'm constantly spiraling is what they call that in the education world, going back and bringing these points in as we move forward. And that's what we do because biblical preaching teaches. Biblical preaching, Paul goes on to say, not only teaches, it's not only profitable for teaching, but profitable, profitable for rebuking. Ooh, nobody likes that. Biblical preaching rebukes. Y'all, this is where the preacher fusses. And this isn't the preacher fussing, remember? This is Scripture fussing. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just telling you, the preacher is just telling you what Scripture says. And we say he's fussing because really all he's doing is calling out sin based on what Scripture says. So, well, he's just fussing at me because I do stuff. Well, no, that's Scripture convicting you. Because you do stuff. When the preacher says, when somebody says, oh, you really stepped on my toes, what are they saying? You rebuked me. But it's not me. It is Scripture that rebukes. 
It is Scripture that the one, is the one that steps on our toes. Scripture is a mirror. And it shows us exactly what we are. When I read Scripture and it, says, and it says, love your neighbor as yourself, I look at that and I see in the mirror somebody who probably doesn't keep that command the way he should. It reflects me exactly as I am when I read that Scripture. So, I have to change. I get mad at it. Well, I don't like my neighbor. Well, too terribly tough. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so I'm rebuked and my toes are stepped on. And we go home and say, well, that preacher offended me. Well, sorry. Scripture rebukes, Paul says. It doesn't just rebuke, though, right? We, we, we're, we're big, especially, again, in the educational world. You, you can't just fuss at a kid. You've got to uh, uh, redirect is the word we use. That's not the word exactly Paul used. He said biblical preaching corrects. It's profitable for, rebuke, for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting. All right, this is what you do, Scripture says, but this is what you're supposed to do. And Scripture always gives the how, too. It, this is what you do. This is what you're supposed to do. Let me tell you how. Is it prayer? Is it more time in Scripture? Is it... Is it uh, reorganizing your life so that the influences on your life are no longer those influences. Giving up friends, abandoning family even, Jesus says, that we are to do if they interrupt our, our Christian life, our sanctification. So, biblical preaching redirects us. It says you're going that way, that's the wrong way. This is the proper way. This is the direction to go. That is a correction. Uh, if uh, we are driving along on vacation, and we're going to go see the Grand Canyon, and you're going to the road that runs perpendicular to the Grand Canyon, so you're heading to the Grand Canyon, your GPS, hopefully... The sign at the end of the road definitely will tell you that way. Course correction. Because if you keep going the way you are going, you're running off a cliff. That's what Scripture does. Course correction. If you keep going this way, you are going to run off a spiritual cliff, a physical cliff, an emotional cliff, a psychological cliff. There's an end coming that you're not going to like. Course correction. Biblical preaching that corrects, well, it offends. Don't tell me I'm going the wrong direction, okay? I didn't. Scripture did. Paul says it, it teaches, it rebukes, it corrects, and it trains. Biblical preaching trains. I said we repeat things, and you're thinking, well, I heard this sermon however many months ago. You didn't hear the exact sermon, I guarantee you, but you probably did hear particular points, particular ideas, because that's what Scripture does. One of the funniest things in, 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 in cinema history, I've never seen this movie, though. Just let me... Okay, I lied. Um, is is the, the Monty Python Holy Grail movie. And it's got some horrible points. I'm not... I'm not advocating for it, but there is one place where they're about to try to blow up the, 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 the rabbit with the teeth. If you've ever seen it, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, you won't understand. But then they read from what is their holy book about how to throw this 
holy hand grenade that they have. And, and they say, uh, you know, pull the pin and you must, I wish I, I had it on, on here to show you, I don't. Pull the pin and you must not pull the pin inadequately, but adequately pull the pin and pull it in a way that the pin comes directly out but does not hang up and over, pull the pin. And when you pull the pin, you must count to three. Do not count to four. Four is too many. Do not count to two. Two is too few. Count to three and only three. Only three must you count to. And it just over and over. And, and it's, it's making fun of some of the places in the Old Testament. But you know what I believe? I think it's really making fun of people. Because we're that dense sometimes that God has to tell us in His Word, count to three. Don't count to four. Don't count to two. Count to three. What did I say? Count to three. Have you ever done that with your child? Nod. Did I say, what did I say? I go clean up your room and go feed the turtle. Now what did I say do? Clean up the room and feed the turtle. Okay, so you're going to now go do what? Clean up the room and feed the turtle. So in that order, you know, we do that with our children. God does that with his children. He trains. In the military, you don't do something one time and say, all right, Sarge, got it. Larry, did, did, you, did you fly the plane one time and, the, and, the, and the, the, the captain says, yeah, you're good, man. Let's go, let's go fight a war or something. I, I watch those guys when we go up to, to, to uh, Selma, Live Oak, Converse, those 20 towns that meet right there uh, at Randolph Air Force Base. And they are constantly coming here, take off and go make this circle. And, and they do that how many days a week? Six days a week. They're up there running laps because they want them to be able to do it blindfolded, in their sleep, backwards, upside down, uh, with both hands tied behind their back. Whatever it takes, they train. The Bible trains us. It repeats. It exemplifies the right way and says, this is it, not that, not that, not that. This is it. This is it, not that or that. This is it, not that, not this. This is it. Now do it this way, over and over and over. And this well, this offends, right? Michael, you said that, I know, and you're still not doing it. And besides, I'm just telling you what Scripture says. Paul goes on and says, biblical preaching qualifies in verse 17. So that the man of God may be complete. That's what that word complete means, qualified, full, fully taught, fully abled, fully ready able to meet all demands, able to meet life head-on because I am qualified to meet life because Scripture has taught me and rebuked me and corrected me and trained me. Now I am qualified. But for Timothy in particular, he's, he's not just talking about how to handle life, though that is part of it. Scripture prepares us to handle life. But for Timothy, and I believe for each and every one of us, because we are all called to minister, we are all called to the ministry, I'm not called to the ministry and the rest of y'all aren't. You all are called to minister. It prepares us, teaches us, qualifies us on how to handle our calling. So you want to know how to be a Christian? Read your Bible. You want to know how to minister to somebody? Read your Bible. You want to know how to preach? Read your Bible. You want to know how to, to witness and evangelize? Read your Bible. You want to know how to grow a church? Read your Bible. You want to know how to reach out to the community? Read your Bible. Because it does all of those things. It qualifies us, which immediately leads us to the last one. Biblical preaching equips. The tools are at the ready. The tools are there. 
What we need to be a church that changes the world is right here. We have what we need. Oh, yeah, a full-time pastor is nice, and, and a lot of money is even better. Building with air conditioning is great. We, we like that. But we have what we need to reach the world, to change the world, to change Nixon, because the tools are here. We go to the Scripture and we come out armed for battle. Ephesians 6 tells us all about that. Where, how, how do we know about the helmet of salvation? Scripture and the, the breastplate of faith. The, scripture and the sword of the Spirit. The, 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 the scripture. Those are the places we find where we are armed, where we are tooled. But we also see that we are expected to work. Biblical preaching equips us, equips people here to go out and to do. Biblical preaching does not allow us to come in and sit and be comfortable with a 30-minute, 35-minute, 38-minute message and say, wow, I've gotten my Jesus for the week, now I'm done. I'll come back and get it again next week. That is not what biblical preaching allows. It is not what Scripture allows. Paul says so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 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 So, to kind of recap, recap, the true gospel that we talked about three weeks ago, it belies the need for a therapeutic moralism. If we need the true gospel, then therapeutic moralism will not do. It will not work. Man's need is not to be happy and, uh, what did I say? Happy and well-adjusted. Man's need is for their sins to be forgiven and for them to be saved from an eternity in hell apart from God. That's what man's need is. And therapeutic moralism won't get you there. An outward focus of the church rejects the use of therapeutic moralism because we can get the world who doesn't know Jesus to feel happy about the fact they don't know Jesus and to change a few of their lifestyle choices, but they're still going to go to hell. An outward focus says they need Jesus, and we reject therapeutic moralism. And then finally, biblical preaching knows nothing of therapeutic moralism. If we just take the messages of Jesus and for a minute leave alone the letters of Paul, never did he tell somebody, look, I just want you to be happy and well-adjusted in this, this tyrannical country we live in, dominated by Rome. Y'all just, just, if you'll just change your lives a little bit, you'll feel better. That was not his message. See, there has to be a recognition of sin. There, there has to be a radical heart change. That should be the purpose. That should be the goal of preaching. Not a, an emotional massage. Make me feel good. And, and steps to, to better your life. Now, can Scripture make us feel good? Absolutely. I'm sorry, y'all, but it makes me feel good to know that my sins are covered. I'm not sorry. Uh, my sins are covered. That makes me feel good. To know that I am as corrupt and evil and as bad as the Bible says I am, and that yet while I was a sinner, Christ died for me, that is an emotional massage. Jesus loved me enough to pick me up out of what I was 
and make me something brand new that makes me feel good. And let me tell you that Scripture takes you to a better life. The process of sanctification is a better life. But if we stop at Jesus wants to make you feel good and, ha- and you f- to behave, then we have condemned people to hell in their emotional happiness and their life betterment. And that is not the call of the church. See, the call of the church, the call of the biblical message is radical surgery. Bullet wound, we're calling it to the chest, we're calling in the best surgeons, right? Stat, get them here. We've got to do some major stuff and we work on it. We don't say, uh, you know, it's just, it's just a flesh wound to go back to our Monty Python movie. Radical surgery says all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us need a Savior. We don't need to feel happy about ourselves. We don't need to tweak a few things in our life so we're better. We need to realize we have sinned. We are God's enemy. But while we were there, while we were in that life earning death, earning eternal separation from God, God sent His Son to die for us. God sent the only salvation, the only eternal life we could have through Jesus while we were yet sinners, while we were in rebellion, while we had, were, were taking up arms against God, He sent Jesus so that we could call out His name. Not call out, I feel happy. Not call out, life is good. But to call out, Jesus, save me. Everyone who calls on that name will be saved if we confess it with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God's raised him from the dead. We'll be saved. That's the radical surgery, surgery we need. That is the message I want to leave First Baptist Nixon on. I want the message to be Jesus loves you right where you are, but he doesn't want to leave you there. God wants to do something in your life. He wants to perform radical surgery. And maybe for somebody here, that radical surgery is salvation. Maybe there are other, you know, some amputations that need to be happen and need to happen in your Christian life. Maybe maybe we just need to pray for the future of this church today and what God's going to do down the road. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that that salvation is your end, the, 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 the Scripture's end. That is where you want to take every person. And Lord, if we stop short of that, we are not doing justice to Scripture. We're not performing our called task as a church, but in fact, we are leading people astray and should have millstones tied around our necks and thrown into the lake because we are preaching something other than the gospel. God, I pray that that never can be said here. That, that regardless of what happens in the future, regardless of, of what you do with First Baptist Nixon, the true gospel will be preached. 
the focus will always be on the lost. And the scriptures will be the inerrant, the infallible, God-breathed scripture will always be the foundation of what is done. All with the end and purpose of sharing the gospel with the lost and seeing your kingdom expand. God, I pray your hand will be on this place. That you will move in a mighty way. And Lord, you will move in spite of faulty leaders, of which I'm the chief. In spite of circumstances in a town. In spite of anything people may do, God, let your glory shine through regardless. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So that surgery brings about a new heart, right? And maybe this morning you need a new heart. Maybe this morning you just want to pray. Mike and Etta are going to lead us. We're going to sing. Stand with me. Let's sing. And let's do business with God this morning.